My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from the beginning to end. For I told him that I will judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons uttered blasphemies against God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, Here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome to Matt. Um, If you're wondering whose mobile that is on the screen, that's not mine, but it is a mobile number in which you can text any questions you might have about this passage. As part of our deeper podcast that we ran last term for the first time when we were looking at Luke 10 to 12, we're running it again this term as we look at 1 Samuel, and Grace is putting that together each week. So if you have a question that you'd like included on the podcast, Grace will get it through that number and uh, include it in the podcast. If you haven't listened, then let me encourage you to tune in. You just go into our website and where there's sermons, you can click on that and it pulls down one for sermons, one for podcasts. And you can go on there and uh, listen. It's only about 15 or 20 minutes, and uh, it looks a little bit deeper, I guess, at the passage that we've been doing, covers some things that we can't cover in the sermon on a Sunday. Um, One other announcement before I pray and we look at this passage that's just been read for us is that, as Matt mentioned earlier, we're hoping to have some baptism classes again. We have uh, another... 
a Kareni um, teenager that's keen to get baptised, as we did um, on Easter Sunday. And so we're looking forward to that, but we're also encouraging at the same time some others that might want to do the class with her. So if you've never thought about baptise, you have baptism and you haven't been baptised, we'd love you to come along to that. Ken Davies will be running it. Um, this will probably be in a couple of Sundays' time, but you can negotiate and chat with Ken about that. We'll just do a time that suits people that would like to be there. There's no obligation if you did the class that you actually go forward to be baptised, but if you just look at the New Testament, think about that question uh, with Ken. So please speak to him afterwards if you'd like to consider that. But let me pray for us now um, as we come to consider this passage together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather together this morning. We thank you for your word to us. And we acknowledge that sometimes it's quite striking and challenging. And we look at such a passage this morning as we consider Eli and his household. We ask, Lord, that you might help us to reflect on it, to consider ourselves and our standing before you, our need to repent of sin where it enters into our life. Strengthen us to think through these things this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in an article in the Daily Telegraph on Wednesday in this past week, uh, Sydney Anglican Minister Michael Jensen noted how the federal election in this past week seemed to focus in on a theological discussion about hell for a time. He wrote, Now it seems not only our footballers but also our political leaders will need to submit their to a theology examination set by the secular inquisition to see if they subscribe to any heretical views or not. Gone is the assumption that religion is a private matter. Apparently, each party now has to present its afterlife policy for the approval of the media and the masses. So is there a hell and who is going there? But if Shorten and Morrison believe in hell, it's very good news for the electorate. It means that they're accountable to a higher judge who they can't hoodwink. They ought to be less embarrassed about it. Unless we seek the mercy of God, that's where we are going, regardless of how we identify ourselves. It has been an interesting discussion. I think the question of uh, leadership and judgment is a key one in our section today in 1 Samuel. We read how the priestly leadership of Eli and his household all unraveled uh, due to God's promised judgment on their sin. And I think this should lead us to self-reflection on this important topic. So the big question that I'd like us to consider this morning is this. How are we to respond to God's coming judgment? How are we to respond to God's coming judgment? This brings us to the first answer to that question this morning. The first answer is this, by repenting of sin in our life. By repenting of sin in our life. Have a look again, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. We didn't read this section earlier, but this is the first part of the passage we're considering today. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, it was a practice of the priest that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot and whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, 
Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. See, the mess at Shiloh, which was the situation, the place where the tabernacle was, the tent of meeting to interact and worship God, the mess at Shiloh is so visible at this point in Israel's history that we can't miss it. And it's really no surprise, given the prayer of Hannah that we considered last week as we kicked off. Hannah's prayer had spoken of the arrogant in chapter 2, verse 3, the mighty, the wicked, those who contend with God. And here they are in the form of Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, the high priest. It's not the Philistines, the outsiders that are causing problems. It's the priests of Israel, the internal problem that is the immediate one and worship is a farce at Shiloh and the root problem is given to us there in verse 12 Eli's two sons had no regard for the Lord literally the Hebrew words there or phrase says they did not know Yahweh how can the priest of the nation not know God but it explains a lot doesn't it how tragic that such words could be used to describe the spiritual leaders of God's people. And given that route, you have to expect bad fruit will flow. And we're given two types of bad fruit that's happening um, in the passage that follows. Firstly, notice in verses 13 to 17, we learn that the sacrificial system has been held in contempt. People are, are bringing their offerings and sacrifice. And part of the process was that the family bringing it would enjoy a portion of the sacrifice as sort of a post-sacrificial meal after the main part had been given to the Lord. However, uh, while they're um, boiling up the meat, along would come the priest's servant with his three-pronged barbecue fork. He'd plunge it into the worshipper's pot and whatever he brought up, he'd just carry it away to the priest's quarters for enlarging their meal. According to the law, uh, back in Leviticus 7, the priest was already allotted uh, the breast and the right leg of any offering that was made. But the servant here of the priest is sent to stab for more. Worse still, uh, before the fat was burned in honour of God, which was required in the law in Leviticus 3, the servant could appear depend, you know, demanding fresh cuts of meat from the worshipper before they even did that. And if the worshipper reminded the priest's lackey that this was not the right way, that they weren't following the law and honouring God, well, they became thugs and they threatened them. They would take it by force. Can you imagine this scene going on day after day at Shiloh? There's the religious immorality. But then secondly, in verse 22, we learn that Hophni and Phinehas had sexual relations with the women who tended the tabernacle at Shiloh. Um, Exodus 38.8 describes very briefly the role of these women as legitimate. That was a, a role that had been set up under Moses. They, we're told they just simply served at the entrance to the tent of meeting, perhaps welcoming people or helping them prepare for the sacrifices. But Hophni and Phinehas are changing things drastically. And it wasn't even some hidden immorality here. 
Notice we read it's openly known by all of Israel in verse 22. And so to add to the abuse of the sacrificial system, there is their personal immorality that's taking place at the tabernacle that represents God's presence. Now, all this begs the question, doesn't it? What does Eli, the head priest, their father, think of his son's actions? What is he doing about this contempt? Well, notice what is recorded in verses 22 to 25. Now, Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And so he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. Verse 25, If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. So Eli's hearing all these messages from everyone else. Obviously, the sons haven't gone and spoken to him about what they're doing, but he doesn't need to hear it from them. He's heard it from every person in Israel, it seems. They'd turn the tabernacle into a brothel. They'd turn the place where you might have confessed sin into the place where you committed sin. And Eli clearly rebukes them here. He, he warns them, at least, about their blatant defiance, that they're placing themselves in a position where they're beyond help, where they're beyond forgiveness. But they wouldn't listen. They didn't repent of their sins. And because of their persistent rebellion, God had decided to put them to death. We read at the end of verse 25. He'd hardened their hearts after a point in time. And so they were hardened to Eli's plea. And this should not cause us to question God's mercy, but rather to tremble before God and turn to him in repentance to keep short accounts with him. Now, repentance is a word that means an about-face, a 180-degree turn, a change of mind, metanoia. The language of turning away from sin is an admittance that you were wrong. You did the wrong thing, that you are a rebel sinning against God. What should repentance look like? It was November of 2000. Um, Christine and I travelled into Sydney CBD. It was a sunny afternoon and we were going to climb the Harbour Bridge. Uh, by the time we got to Bridge Climb for our late afternoon assault, uh, the sky had become ominously dark, actually, and uh, thunderstorm threatening, it seemed. But our Bridge Climb leader assured us everything would go ahead. You know, we were soon in the middle of what they called a thorough briefing. If you've done it, you spend 45 minutes putting on the gear and practicing, putting your hook onto their little steel replica of the bridge frame that you're going to be on. You're dressed up with all the communication gear. You're doing your practice climbs. But midway through this routine, which has big glass windows looking out over the bridge, we could see that rain had started steadily falling. And we were thinking, we're probably not going to see the promised 360-degree views. Um, this is not going to be so fun. But we were assured that things would go ahead. After all, we'd been suited up with rain gear as well. We were fitted with special rain jackets. And so our unstoppable leader ensured us that we would go ahead. And so somewhat anxiously, uh, we headed out. 
But as we were walking under the bridges, undercarry, undercarriage, and before you climb up through the stairs at the top, um, the sort of steady rain had turned into a thunderstorm, and there was like fork lightning strikes <laughs> happening all around us. And I was sort of looking at my joggers, wondering if they could take a direct strike on a steel bridge, um, thinking probably not. And uh, we're getting anxious, you know, gone from worrying about seeing a good view to death. And uh, we're walking up through the stairs thinking, surely somebody's going to pull the plug on this thing. And only at the very last minute as we're coming up through the carriageway above the road did they said, oh, you know, conditions are no good. Really? (laughs) And we turned around and went back inside. That's repentance. That's admitting that you were wrong and turning back 180 degrees and going back where you came from. That's what we're called to do. A complete change of mind. See, as we apply ourselves um, to what we're hearing here about Eli this morning, let me ask you, do you find yourself in positions at time where you're ignoring sin like Eli's sons? They just ignored it. They just carried on. And maybe you excuse it, you know, as the fault of somebody else. Well, you know, look, it's not my fault. Um, you know, it was the way I was brought up. Um, it's, it's my parents' fault. You know, they're poor example. Or, or God, you're really to blame because you made me like this. I can't be anything other than who I am. And so, you know, it's, I'm not at fault here. How unfair of you to judge me for my failings, God. I think when we start to put it in those kind of words, we start to hear something of the offence of our sin before God and the excusing or ignoring of it, how it must seem to him. It's a game that can't work with God. God knows our heart. We can't pretend that things are okay. He knows exactly what's going on in our life and in our heart. And so we need to run to him, not away from him. The cold light of day will shine on your actions alone and no one's going to be held responsible on the final day for your words, your thoughts, your actions, except for you. But the wonderful hope of forgiveness is held out, isn't it, if genuine repentance occurs. And a true repentance involves acknowledging our sin, something that Eli's sins apparently, Eli's sons apparently never did. And then truly seeking God's forgiveness, acknowledging that he can deal with our sin if only we will come to him, we'll admit our need. And that brings us to a second answer to the question. How are we to respond to God's coming judgment? Not only by repenting of our own sin, but by repenting of failing to stand against others' sin. Have a look at verses 27 to 29. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? Verse 29, Why do you, this is God speaking to Eli, Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me? By fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel. You see, the spiritual problem with the nation was that the priestly leadership was corrupt. Eli's sons had abused their authority, and God is saying to Eli, You failed to take action against them. 
Well, sure, we saw earlier that he verbally rebuked them briefly. But he'd taken no action to expel Hophni and Phinehas from the priestly office. They just kept going. I mean, Eli might protest that he tried to say something. But his sons didn't suffer any unemployment here. There was no tabernacle discipline. And it seems that Eli took part in some sense that they were stealing all this extra food off people and it was coming onto his plate as well. And he was getting fat eating it. He was complicit in what was happening. And the story of previous grace to Eli's line, this is the Levitical priesthood that could be traced all the way back to Aaron. That's what God is speaking about in verses 27 and 28. All that history just makes this present sin seem all the worse. And so in verse 29, Eli is charged with scorning the sacrifices. I mean, there can't be a higher charge from God against the priest that he's put in charge of the sacrifices than you've completely failed with the sacrifices. But he's also charged with not acting against his son's sin. He honoured them above God. Now, we might say perhaps Eli could not have stopped his son's immorality, but he could prevent them doing it as priests. He could fire them. He had tolerated sin and he'd failed God. And God was going to rebuke Eli twice for this, both through this unnamed man of God that we're getting this little section on, and then again in chapter 3 through Samuel the one he was training up. Look, as we apply this to ourselves, we need to see that standing by and doing nothing when there is clear public sin, that we have some connection or relationship with the person, certainly if it's our own family, our own children, perhaps others as well, if we stand by and do nothing, that is gutless. (laughs) That is not just in leaders. Every one of us is a leader if we have any oversight or responsibility for anything or anyone. And I think it's so easy for us to be drawn into not wanting to offend anyone. Maybe he didn't want to hurt his son's feelings. We can equate this with being nice, can't we? Oh, we're being loving, we're being compassionate, we don't want to say anything. Are we ignoring God's law? And despising his holiness by failing to speak up about public sin that is clearly hurting other people. And that was clearly Eli's failing here. We might spare human feelings and then fail to honour God. But sometimes our failure to act is because of the cost to us. Not just broken relationship, maybe there'll be reprisals even. Maybe there'll be persecution Perhaps in your workplace, if you bring up the fact that so-and-so is cheating or is doing creative accounting in the business or whatever it might be, evil flourishes when good people fail to act. Now, one famous example of standing up against evil is that of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know, so despondent had the German people been after the defeat of World War I and the subsequent economic depression that the charismatic Hitler appeared to be the nation's saviour to many. Many, of him, many people spoke about him as being the answer to their prayers. 
You believe that? Even many German pastors thought so, and they made statements like, Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler. One exception was theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was determined not only to refute this idea, but also to topple Hitler. And together with other pastors and theologians, he helped organize the Confessing Church. They pulled out of the Lutheran Church in Germany because the Lutheran Church was backing Hitler to the hilt. And together with other pastors, they pulled out and they publicly announced that their allegiance is first to Jesus and no one else. And then they taught in an underground seminary until it was closed down by the Nazis. Eventually, Bonhoeffer was arrested in 1943 for helping Jews to escape to freedom. He spent two years in prison, and then on April 9, 1945, one month before Germany surrendered, he was executed with six other, six other resistors. But he is quoted as saying this, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And that brings us to a third answer. A third answer to the question of how we're to respond to God's coming judgment. Repent of our own sin. Repent of not standing against sin. Thirdly, by faithfully warning others that God will one day judge. By faithfully warning others. Have a look at chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. Remember, Samuel has just received a stunning message about his boss, his adopted father. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called to him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. It's ironic words, isn't it? So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Chapter 3 begins in verse 1 uh, with a note that God's word was rare at this time. He was not speaking through his leaders. He was not speaking to his people. He didn't have any leaders to speak through. That was part of the problem. There were no faithful priests or prophets. And the absence of the word of God is a sign of God's judgment, not only on Eli's household, but over the nation. God's withdrawn the light of his word and he's allowed Israel to wander around in darkness, as it were. But something's about to change. There's, there's a glimpse of hope suddenly in the book of 1 Samuel. And it comes in the presence of this young boy that's been set aside by Hannah, his mother. God's going to start speaking through Samuel. But his first word, his very first word to him is to announce judgment on his adopted father. How's that for a first message? Now, we know Eli had already been warned. Samuel didn't know that, of God's coming judgment by an unknown man of God at the end of chapter 2. But 
he is again warned by Samuel. And this would have been a much harder task than it was for the man of God, not only because of his relationship with Eli, but because of the severe, irreversible nature of God's words. I mean, imagine a young lad being given that responsibility. No wonder he was afraid to immediately pass on the message in verse 15. Uh, but God sees to it that he will because he has Eli pressure him, <laughs> the threat of being cursed if he held back any information. So Samuel faithfully sounded the warning of God's coming judgment. This highlights something, doesn't it, of the burden, the conflict involved in sharing God's word. Uh, Samuel will speak words of judgment because truth is at stake, and yet he's, he's cringing to speak it because compassion moves him. He has a strong relationship with Eli. See, warnings of God's judgment are heartrending. They have to be if we're speaking out of love. We hold out the gospel of life. The rejection of it means God's judgment. And no one enjoys seeing people reject God's grace. Look, as we apply this section to ourselves, we need to grasp that God will fulfill his plans. He's going to completely. God's word always brings a result. It never returns void. Isaiah 55, 11, we know this famous verse. So is my word that goes out from my mouth, says the Lord. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. But you see, the problem is that the purpose for which God sent his word is twofold. It is both salvation and judgment. Both are true. We're used to reflecting on how God's word is the power for salvation. And that is wonderful. That's why we... Uh, to share the gospel, whichever chance we, any chance we have. But it also brings judgment when people reject it. We have to realize that God is glorified both in salvation and in judgment. His word meets its end. It fulfills its purpose. God is glorified in all circumstances. In the law, God made it very clear in two places that if God's people and their leaders did not obey his word, then there would be covenant curses that fell. But if they did obey his word, then it would bring life. There would be blessing. Uh, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 make it abundantly clear that God is a promise-keeping God, but it issues in salvation or it issues in judgment. And God is now acting in judgment at this moment in Israel's life. He is lopping off one part of Aaron's Levitical priest, priestly line. He will find another line through which to do the priesthood, but it won't be Eli's family any longer. In fact, Eli's household will oversee not only the ruining of the priesthood at this time at Shiloh, but in the very next chapters we'll see next week, the loss of God's Ark of the Covenant. I mean, they bring the nation to its knees spiritually. And that tabernacle site at Shiloh will never again be of any central importance in the life of Israel for the rest of the Old Testament. But God was glorified in this because his righteous judgment was fulfilled. And you see, the same is still true today. And this is the application that I want to leave for us. 
God's unfolding revelation was moving towards, as we saw last week, the unveiling of his word in flesh, incarnate son. And Jesus' life and message centered on the gospel, centered on the once for all atoning sacrifice at the cross, which can deal with our sin. Notice God had decided in chapter 3 that the guilt of Eli's house would never be atoned for by sacrifice. Chapter 3, verse 14. But our sin can be atoned for by sacrifice if we'll accept God's word, the gospel. But if we don't accept the gospel, then like Eli, God's wrath will remain upon us. And if we have received the gospel then we know that so many people need to hear it. We must pass it on. We must pass on this truth. We're to be Christ's ambassadors and hold out the word of life, providing a word of warning to others where needed, that God's judgment really is coming, that there is a real decision to be made. Well, I'm sure many of you have been following the story of Israel Folau over the last few weeks. And although there are arguably some flaws in the way he used the blunt instrument that is social media, uh, Israel Folau has certainly been clear about what he believes. He's pointed people to the biblical truth that God will judge all sins. People often missed it, but his list included every Australian because <laughs> we all fall into one of the categories. And he's been prepared to pay a high price, hasn't he, for warning people of God's coming judgment with his contract effectively torn up on Friday. He's taken a massive hit. He's had to feel the ire of Qantas and Rugby Australia. In an article in the Armadale Express, um, Anglican Minister Rick Lewis said it this way, it's striking to think that such a man of integrity could lose his contract when both codes have continued to contract players guilty of being drunk behind the wheel of a car, domestic violence, being a public nuisance, using cocaine and other drugs and even sexual abuse. I never thought I would see the day in Australia where Christianity is more reprehensible to the public than these. But what about you? We might say, well, Falau has been courageous. But what about you? Are you willing to faithfully warn those around you while holding out the good news of salvation? Think about it for a moment. Would you be willing to give up $4 million to warn Australians about God's coming judgment? Israel has obviously thought better the wrath of Qantas than the wrath of God. But you see, the gospel is going to produce a result one way or the other. It's not going to return empty. And it's a theme that keeps coming up in the New Testament as well. Have a look at the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 2, as we close. This is what happens as the gospel goes out. For we are to God the aroma of Christ amongst those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal? to such a task. See, we start with the question, how are we to respond to God's coming judgment, a coming judgment that Eli and his household were facing? Well, we've seen through his example and that of Samuel that we need to repent 
firstly, of sin in our own life. Secondly, we need to repent when we have not stood against sin, when we had the opportunity. And thirdly, we need to be those who are faithfully warning others. Holding out the gospel means acknowledging that there is heaven and hell, that there are eternal realities and rewards and punishments that follow from our choice to accept or to reject Jesus. It's a gospel of grace, but God's grace one day ends when judgment finally falls. The opportunity to respond has closed at that moment. May God help us to do all three of those things, no matter what cost it comes to us personally, because we want to honour God and not people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We ask that you might help us to live in the light of it this day and this week. We pray for your help through the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.